Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. And here we are, Colleen. Oh we're, we're in chapter nine, <laughs> verses 20 through 27. Oh, the one I've been dreading. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe we did it. So I have to ask, what was the hardest thing about it for you? You mean besides the math? <laughs> <laughs> that was hard. Always is. I never keep track of my zeros. But um, to be honest, one of the things that was the most troubling to me was the lingering fear in the back of my mind that there'd be brothers and sisters I respect who disagree with how I see this passage. Mm-hmm. But I realized as I started studying it that if I use the hermeneutic we've established, the words mean what the words say, context is everything, the grammatical historical method. Mm-hmm. If that's the hermeneutic we're using, then I have to be consistent and use it here. So it's kind of like you said to me earlier, Nikki, if people don't like us using this hermeneutic in Daniel, then how can we use it in Galatians? What about you? For me, the hardest thing about this passage was getting started. Oh, man, I get that. Aside from the fact that I had a a pile of unusual distractions coming into this podcast, I had fear that I just wasn't going to get it. I just wasn't going to get it because it seems if you just read it, you know, with the background information that I had in my head, it seems really hard to get. Yeah, me too. But when you press into it and you study it and you remain faithful to the hermeneutic, so you're not driven by, oh, but what about this or what about that? But you're driven by a set of rules and you just keep the rules as you go one step at a time. It's like my son who needs to learn how to drive. And it's such a big task for him. And it's overwhelming to think about starting. And I keep saying, you know the steps, you know what you have to do. It's just one step at a time. And just taking this passage one verse at a time, and there's so much in one verse, Yeah. but taking it one verse at a time using the normal rules, you come out on the other end so excited because right. it, it's not scary. It has nothing to do with the Adventist timeline charts. No, which I learned, memorized, and drew and never understood. Oh, those are wicked. Yeah. No, it has nothing to do with any of that. I was telling Richard, it takes other passages of scripture that I've read and loved and known that it's related to. It throws color on it. Yeah. Yeah. I had already seen some of the stuff that this passage fleshes out. I've seen it taught in other parts of scripture, but suddenly there's color and shimmer and it's so exciting. I agree. I feel like this is one of the most exciting things that has happened to me since we've been doing the podcast. This culmination in this prophecy is astonishing. (laughs) It's totally redeemed the horror I had as an Adventist Mm -hmm. (laughs) as I learned that crazy 490-year prophecy and all the fear and all the little horns. And I can't tell you today exactly what that was that I learned, (laughs) but it's not the same now. It's not. It's not the same. And one of the wonderful things about this, even now, we can say with confidence, this is not a salvation issue. Right. But this offers the most amazing confidence in the Word of God and in God Himself and in our future and in all that He has planned. It is so exciting. It's thrilling, really, is the word. I feel the same way. (laughs) You're right when you say it's not a salvation issue. The salvation issue is Jesus, Mm -hmm. His death, burial, and resurrection. But this is about what God is doing while He's bringing about the salvation of humanity. My goodness, it's exciting. (laughs) And it's partly exciting because it's actually not obscure. Yeah. When you believe the words. Yeah. It's people who've made it obscure. Mm -hmm. Nikki, you had an amazing quote that summarizes what I've been feeling about this. Could you read that for us to start us off? Yeah. So my favorite go-to is Precept Austin. It Mm -hmm. has a pile of different commentators on various passages of scripture. And this comes from that website. I believe that the author is Austin himself here, Mm -hmm. but you'd have to check me on it. So it's related to Daniel 9, 24 through 27. 
And he says, in regard to the numerous interpretations of Daniel 9, 24 through 27, the reader should keep in mind that fortunately God is not a God of confusion, and thus God's word has one intended meaning, although prophecy can occasionally have a double fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And that meaning is most advantageously assessed by interpreting the passage as literally as possible. The moment one begins to see figurative or symbolic language in passages that can otherwise be interpreted literally is the moment that speculation and imagination begin to incubate, eventually giving birth to erroneous, even absurd interpretations. Mm -hmm. We will not attempt to review the numerous interpretations as in our opinion, that would be a profitless exercise in light of the fact that the plain sense of this great passage makes good sense when viewed in the light of historical fulfillment. The fact that much of this prophecy has literally been fulfilled is support for the interpretation that the remaining portion will be literally fulfilled in the future. I love that. And we really can see that there's prophecy here that's been literally fulfilled. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, okay. So here we go, Nikki. (laughs) We're going to read our passage. We're going to start with verse 20, and in verses 20 to 23, we hear Daniel's explanation of Gabriel coming to him with another answer to his prayer here. And then from verses 24 to 27, we have the prophecy that Gabriel gives him. So, would you read all of that for us, please? Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress." Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And for the first time, Nikki, listening to you read and reading along with you, I read that and feel myself excited (laughs) instead of filled with dread. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but we had to get through it, didn't we? (laughs) Yeah, we did. (laughs) So when we walk back up to verse 20... We begin with Daniel confessing his sin. So, you want to comment on that a little bit? This is at the end of his prayer, and he's saying, well, I'm confessing. Yeah, we had talked about that prayer last week. He was doing corporate repentance for Israel. He'd seen in Jeremiah that they were coming to the end of the 70 years, and he wanted to the Lord to come and do what he said he was going to do. And he expressed his confidence in who God is and that he would do what he said he would do. So he's repenting and confessing. And while he's in the middle of it, (laughs) Gabriel appears. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) While he was speaking, while he was talking. And Gabriel tells him that at the beginning of his supplications, the command was issued. He was sent by God to give Daniel this answer. That's amazing. I had to laugh because I found a couple of different commentators who had the same consensus on this. It was a joke, actually, but it made me laugh. They said, so if you read Daniel's prayer out loud, it takes about three minutes. So Gabriel shows up and says, 
at the beginning of your prayer, the command went forth and I am come. He says, so we can tell that Gabriel can get from heaven to earth in three minutes. (laughs) Actually, as Richard said, I think it's all instantaneous. God is here. He sends his angels when he needs them. One of the things that I read that I thought was interesting, and I know you can't be dogmatic about it, but it was interesting. One commentator wrote, the elderly saint of God was given a foretaste of millennial blessing when, according to God's own word in Isaiah 65, 24, before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. It's really cool. Yeah, that was neat. I also thought it was interesting. You know, the Bible is very complimentary to Daniel throughout. He's considered a a righteous man. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe it was J. Vernon McGee had this little anecdote. He said he had been speaking somewhere. A university student came to him and said he thought that he knew one man who hadn't sinned. And he said that Daniel hadn't sinned. And so, Dr. McGee told him, you know, show me some proof. And he he came back and said, you know, there's no evidence in the Bible that he ever sinned. But McGee says, Daniel says he's confessing his sin. So, Daniel sinned. Mm -hmm. He said, it's not about the Ten Commandments. He said, nobody's ever saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. But people have sin in their hearts. Mm -hmm. And even the righteous Daniel was confessing his sins, which is instructive for everybody, I think. So Daniel, as you've already said, Nikki, is confessing his sins and the sins of his people, but he also says he's praying on behalf of his people and on behalf of what else? On behalf of the holy mountain of my God, he says. And what is that? That's Jerusalem. That's the temple. That's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And once again, like we mentioned last week, it's really significant and interesting and not an accident that that's included in this passage. I mean, of course, Daniel's in the Old Covenant, but he is praying to God for himself, for his people, and for the land that God gave his people, where God put his name. So, all of this is connected and can't be separated. Daniel's praying for Israel. So, in verse 21, Gabriel comes, and when does Gabriel show up for him? While he was still speaking in prayer. Besides that, Daniel also says he was in a particular condition. He was extremely weary. He had been fasting. We learned last week in his prayer, he'd been fasting. And Gabriel came to him during the evening sacrifice. So we have Daniel still measuring time by Jewish religious practices, even though he'd been in Babylon for most of his life. And hadn't been able to offer any sacrifices. You know, in in case you think we're making much of something by speculating, I have to say that this is still going on in Israel today. When we went to Israel in 2008, we were on the flight across the ocean, (laughs) and it was the middle of the night for us, and about three in the morning, wherever we were, our watches said three in the morning, I'm not sure what time it was over over the ocean, suddenly that enormous plane was filled with people standing up, moving around, and every Jewish man in the airplane had put on his prayer shawl, the thing on his head with the law, and the, I don't even know what they're called, but the leather straps they wind around their arms when they pray. Mm -hmm. And these men were up and going to the rear of the plane, to the windows of the plane, anywhere they could find to stand, and there were a lot of them. And they were doing their morning prayers, the time of the morning sacrifice in Israel. There's no sacrifices in Israel, but there's a time for them. And when we landed later in the day, and we were trying to get through customs, it was late in the afternoon, and suddenly all the Jewish men in the airport went rushing over to the wall, the nearest wall, wherever they were, and they started saying their prayers at the time of the evening sacrifice. We had to ask our guide what was going on because it was new to us. And she said, this is the, the time of the evening prayers, the sacrifice time. Wow. So, this is something they have done for centuries. So, that's the time, and, D- and Daniel was still marking time that way. So, in 22, Gabriel tells Daniel that he's come to give him what? I thought it was really interesting, the two words he said. Insight and understanding. Isn't that interesting? I mean, here he's seeing these strange visions and scary prophecies and some stuff that he doesn't even understand yet. And this is what Gabriel says, insight with understanding. That must have been such a relief to him. (laughs) 
Yes, especially in his state. So in 23, Gabriel tells Daniel, you know, that the command was issued and here he is. I thought it was really interesting. What did Gabriel tell Daniel about what God thought of him? That he's highly esteemed. That's really neat. I know. (laughs) And in my marginal reference, it says an alternate translation for the word underlying highly esteemed is precious. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing to hear? Yeah. That you're precious to God and have Gabriel tell you. Yeah. And in the state that he was in. Collapsed, essentially. Wow. So in verse 24, we're going to hear the prophecy that Gabriel has been sent to deliver to this precious, highly esteemed prophet. And this is the prophecy which so many people, including the cult we came from, have twisted for their own purposes. And it's really upsetting to me at this point in things when I read this and realize the way I was taught it, which I still can't exactly explain to you because it was all tied into the investigative judgment and the finishing of it, the way even that I've heard it explained other places, it's like, I don't even know how to approach this. So Nikki, right from the get-go, I want to just say it again. We are reading the words as literally as possible in the normal way you would read any book, a book of history, a novel, a book of science. We know the vocabulary is significant. The words mean what the words say. Verb tenses matter. Prepositions matter. And I can't escape going back to the conclusion we've talked about before. Jesus, the Word, the Logos of John 1, is the one who gave us the Word of God that we have in printed form. This is the Word of God which He gave to us to keep us on track and knowing Him, the only firm foundation of truth tangibly that we have. And I have to believe that the words mean what the words say, or I am completely adrift and confused. Yeah. All of our understanding of scripture still applies. We believe the word of God is clear. We believe it was given to reveal God. We believe scripture interprets scripture. We believe where we're confused, we look in other parts of scripture to get our answers. We don't go into our imagination in our own minds and our own thinking. Or vision. No, (laughs) or vision. No, we actually do not do that. (laughs) And it's also important, I think, to just remind some people, because I remember where my head was about scripture when I left Adventism, we hold to the inerrancy of scripture in its original language. So word studies inform what we're looking at here as well. That's right. So in verse 24, Gabriel begins, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, significantly, he announces a time period, and then he gives six things that are going to be accomplished in this time period. Those become extremely significant, and we're going to look at them. So, Nikki, when you read this, and as you studied it, Talk to us about what you learned about the 70 weeks. Sure. So there's not actually a word that means weeks in this text. So the word that, that's translated weeks here is, I'm not going to be able to say it right, Sabua. It's, it's good for me. Strong's number 07620. <laughs> you can look it up. But it means a unit of seven. And it could refer to seven of anything. It's just a numerical measure. And our English equivalent is heptad. It's just a group of seven. And the groups work out here to mean years. And we can conclude that they mean years, both from the prophecy that's to follow, from history, from our perspective, and from the context of Daniel. Because in the first part of this chapter, Daniel is talking about years. He's reflecting that Jeremiah has said there's 70 years of captivity are just about up. And he's wondering what is going to happen now. And it's interesting, too, that Jeremiah also made it clear that their 70 years of captivity was for their idolatry. And we also know from other passages in the Old Testament that their idolatry included the fact that they had neglected to give the land, the Sabbath rests that God commanded them to give the land, 49 times. So, there were 49 Sabbath years that Israel had failed to give the land, and that actually adds up to 490 years. Here they have been in captivity, 
and the land has been given its Sabbath rests that Israel had failed to give it. He's been thinking about years. He's been thinking about the reason for the years. And now that Gabriel comes and says 77s or 70 weeks of years, 70 groups of seven years have been appointed for your people. Yeah, this this wouldn't have been mystifying to Daniel. It is little to us. We don't have a context for this, but the Jews had sabbatic years where their years were divided into weeks of years. It's just the way it was for them. So what is it that Gabriel says is going to happen? What are these six, as you put it earlier, infinitives to make, to finish? What are these six things that are going to happen? Well, it's to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And it's interesting when we look at this section of scripture, these verses 24 through 27, each verse kind of represents one aspect here. Verse 24 is a comprehensive picture of the entire prophecy. It's a summary. Verse 25 is the first 69 sevens. Verse 26 is the events between the 69th and 70th sevens, which we'll get into when we get there. And then verse 27 is the conclusion punctuated by the 70th seven of seven years. Right. And that actually is really helpful to me to have it organized like that. I really appreciated the insight of J. Vernon McGee about this passage right here. He says, Likely, as this 70 years of captivity was coming to an end, and he knew it was coming to an end, he knew God had told Jeremiah that he was going to take the people back to the land. So Daniel is here, an old man, seeing this about to end, this captivity about to end, and he's likely thinking, we're going to return to the land. We're going to finally have our kingdom. Will the Messiah come? Will he finally be ruling on the throne of David? But then... He's just had these horrible visions. He's had Daniel 7 with those four horrifying beasts, Daniel 8 about Medo-Persia and Greece, the ram and the shaggy goat with the terrifying little horn. Well, how is the end of the captivity and the supposed return to the land and the hoped-for setting up of the kingdom going to juxtapose itself with all of these Gentile goings-on? This was something he had not seen before these visions, and he didn't understand how what God had said he would do for Israel would fit with what he was now understanding God was going to do in the Gentile world. And here comes Gabriel to explain. It's interesting how we have him praying for God's final redemption of Israel, and the answer he gets is about God's final redemption of Israel. But it's many days in the future. Many, many, days. many days. Yeah. And it makes me think of what we looked at a couple weeks ago when he came and he said, I'm here to explain that ram and that goat. And it pertains to the final indignation. What's going to happen then? Yeah. It's interesting to think of it in my head. It helps me to think of it that Gabriel came and he gave the 77s prophecy to help Daniel see that Israel's messianic kingdom, even though the exile is about to end, the messianic kingdom will not come immediately. The time of the Gentiles has to run its course first. All those empires have to run their courses. And that stone that comes out of heaven without hands and that scene in Daniel 7 where the Ancient of Days takes his throne and opens the books and issues judgment against that little horn, those are going to be occurring concurrently with the 77s for the nation of Israel. And it's really helpful for me to think this prophecy is for Israel. This is for Israel. This is not a prophecy for the Gentiles, or a prophecy we can morph into the side of the cross in the church. This is a very specific prophecy for Israel. And just by the way, it's so significant that this is a prophecy given in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Only the Jews really would even be able to read it in any kind of long-term way. And isn't it just kind of fascinating that even though Hebrew was kind of lost, considered a dead language, only scholars knew it, that when the nation of Israel was formed in 1948, 
the president declared Hebrew would be the national language. <laughs> it was the first time in over 2,000 years that Hebrew had been an extant language. They even had to make up new words for Hebrew to make <laughs> it modern, but it's there. They can read this prophecy in Hebrew now. It's amazing. And, you know, Gabriel said, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. You really have to play a lot with this to make it mean anything else than the, the Israelites, the Jews, and their holy city. Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Using our hermeneutic, you can't make this mean anything except Israel and Jerusalem. And it's important to camp a little bit on that word decreed, because it doesn't mean this may happen. This could happen. This is the plan. If y'all follow along and, and oh, do the right. right thing, it says decreed. The verb tense is the perfect mood, which expresses a completed action. This is going to happen. And this one verse takes them all the way to the time of the end. I think that's fascinating and so important. Once again, the tenses matter, they inform us, and we have to believe what we see. We aren't at liberty to rewrite it or reinterpret it because we don't understand. So the six outcomes, contextually being in reference to the nation of Israel. The first one, to finish the transgression. What transgression are we talking about here? The transgression of the Jewish people. Exactly. The second thing, to make an end of sin. Israel's national sins. Remember, Daniel was just corporately repenting for Israel's national sins, and he's answering this. Yes. Israel hasn't yet ceased to sin, nor has any human. Mm -hmm. So, we can't look at this and say, figurative language, okay, symbolically this occurred at some particular point. This is actually an applied thing that is supposed to happen Mm -hmm. within the 490 years. The third, to make atonement for iniquity. Well, what do we know about that? (laughs) That's where Jesus is. That's where he came in and he died and, and made atonement. And it sent ripple effects into the future and the past and in every direction. It did. Now, it's interesting that these first three outcomes for Israel, to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, all three of these were accomplished by Jesus at the cross. But what we see as we continue reading, as we read through the rest of the Bible, as we just look at history, these are new covenant blessings. These are new covenant outcomes, but they have not yet been applied to Israel as a nation. So, Gabriel is telling Daniel, these things are decreed for your people, but we don't see them reaching a completed state in the nation of Israel at this time. And it's important to remember that Gabriel is speaking about Israel. So then we come to the the fourth one, to bring in everlasting righteousness again to Israel. Well, when has national Israel embraced this righteousness? They haven't. No, they haven't. And this has a direct connection to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, that rock that will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. It does, because that's when the time of the Gentiles will be over and the kingdom of Christ will fill the earth. One commentator I read commented that for this to bring in everlasting righteousness for Israel, for this to be accomplished, Israel must be a nation, as it was when Gabriel talked to Daniel. And this commentator continued by saying, and I'm paraphrasing, the only time when this particular prophecy could be accomplished and stay within the parameters of the 490 years that we're talking about here, the only time this can actually be accomplished is at the end of these years, when Jesus sets up his earthly kingdom. There is no point up to the present when Israel has been a nation and has received everlasting righteousness where its transgressions are done, its sin is ended, atonement has been made, but they haven't received it as a nation. So then, the fifth one, to seal up vision and prophecy. Well, what would that mean? It's finished. It's finished. when, When they come to faith in Christ, all of the promises will have been fulfilled. All of the prophecy will have been fulfilled. And people will argue, well, it's already finished. You know, like you had mentioned before we started the podcast, Hebrews 1.1. 
Mm-hmm. He had once spoken to us long ago by prophets in many times in many ways, but now he's spoken in his son. This is a direct prophecy for Israel, and it includes things that are yet to happen. Yes, exactly. What this is likely referring to is a time when Christ is physically sitting with his people, ruling as the prophecies say he will. And when he does that, he will be fulfilling and will have fulfilled all prophecies, making them unnecessary. Everything will be vindicated, including this prophecy we're studying. When Jesus is finally here, it will all be done. And that's when it will all be sealed up because we'll have him in person. It kind of reminds me of 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul is talking in the center of his passage on spiritual gifts. He has this chapter on love, which used to annoy me as an Adventist because it's like, whatever. But yet, when I read it now, I realize Paul is really saying something profound. And he says at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, for now we have faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And his point in context in 1 Corinthians 13 is that believers now walk by faith, which is things that we can't see, but we know are true. Hope, which is the certainty that he is coming and he's going to take us to be with him, and love. But when we are finally with him, when we see directly and not in a glass darkly, when we see him face to face, faith and hope will be fulfilled and we'll live in love for eternity. (laughs) And that's essentially what Gabriel's saying here about Israel. Vision and prophecy will be sealed up and fulfilled because Jesus We'll be here and we'll see what it all meant and it's all done. And then finally, to anoint the most holy place. What does he mean by this? Well, remember Daniel's specific petition. He says, So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. He's concerned about the situation that they're in at that time. He's praying at a moment in time, but God answers him with how he will ultimately, ultimately turn his face and let it shine on this desolate sanctuary when Christ is seated in the Holy of Holies in Israel and reigns in the Millennial Kingdom. I know how jolting this must sound to some of you, because I would have been really reacting in my days as an Adventist. Even many Christians will say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Israel has rejected Christ. The blessings are the churches. Yes, we're grafted into Christ. We are absolutely in Him. All the blessings He promises in the new covenant are ours. But this prophecy is to Daniel about Israel, and we can't forget that. And it's not alone. There are many prophecies that come and support this one. Jeremiah chapter 33 He says, days are coming when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, at the end of the 490 years, apparently, (laughs) I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This hasn't happened yet. No, it hasn't. And we can't spiritualize it away and say, well, it's it's figuratively fulfilled um, by Christ reigning in our hearts or by Christ reigning over the church. Yes, Christ is at the right hand of God and all authority has been given to him. Absolutely true. But the promises that God made to Israel through Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, and all through the prophets that he would bring them back to the land and reign on the throne of David, those have not happened yet. He has not yet executed justice and righteousness on the earth. That's right. We are still living in in, in the times of tumult that this particular prophecy even foretells. Mm -hmm. That's where we're living. In verse 25, we get to the math part. Well, part of the math part. (laughs) We get to the beginning of this particular prophecy, and what is it that the angel says? Well, he tells him to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 
It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So there's details in here that we can't exclude when we try to figure out what decree he's talking about. Right. He specifically says that it will be built again with plaza and moat. And there are about four different points in time where people have speculated that this has been fulfilled, but only one of them includes the building with the plaza and the moat. And that was with Artaxerxes in about 444 BC, he issued a decree to rebuild the city with plaza and moat. You know, I want to read a little bit of that. It's in Nehemiah 2, 1 to 8, and it's really significant because Adventists gave a different date for the start of this prophecy. I think I learned 457. There Ezra named three other decrees. There were at least four decrees that sent Israel back with different things, permissions and commands to build, but most of them had to do with the temple or various things like that. And the one in 457 was permission for the people to go to Jerusalem. Not a rebuilding. Right. So the one where it seems to make the most sense in terms of the words of Gabriel and in terms of the outcome at the end of the 490 years is Nehemiah 2, 1 to 8, where Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer, he was a Jew, and he gives the time in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, he was the cupbearer. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And this was that 444 Mm -hmm. BC prophecy that you mentioned. And it's very clear, this was the command to go and rebuild the whole city. So then looking back at verse 25, he's telling him, from the issue of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the prince... There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. I had no idea until fairly recently that these verses told Israel when their Messiah would come. I know. Isn't that amazing? They should have known. When Jesus said they should have known, he meant it. (laughs) They should have known. So people ask sometimes, why was this prophecy broken up into seven weeks and 62 weeks? Why Why are these first 69 weeks broken up into two segments? Well, we're not specifically told, but looking back in history, we know that it took about 49 years for Nehemiah and the Israelites to rebuild Jerusalem. The land was in ruins. They had to clean it up. They had to clear out debris. They had to build the city. And what's so interesting is at the end of this 49 years, this first group of seven weeks, it brings us to approximately 397 BC. And here's what was really fascinating to me. I did not know this until just very recently. If you take yourself from the beginning of this command to the end of 49, the first 49 years, it brings you to the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, It takes you to the completed canonization of the Old Testament by the scribe Ezra, and it brings you right up to that intertestamental period. All of this work was done in those first seven weeks or 49 years, and it's the end of the Old Testament when that happens, and the Old Testament is compiled. 
then we go into the intertestamental period. And we've already looked at that in previous chapters where we learned about what would happen with Antiochus Epiphanes to the people Israel. They were beleaguered by the people who kept taking charge of them and ruling over them. The horror of Antiochus Epiphanes came in that period. But the second group of 62 weeks, or 434 years, came at the end of that rebuilding period, at the end of the Old Testament, when they had their Old Testament scriptures, when Malachi had written his last word, and those 400 years of, quote, silence from God began. So then that takes us right up to this moment. He says, I love the untils. He says, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, and then he gives us all the numbers. That Messiah the Prince is important. The language there is important because a lot of commentators try to figure out at what point is this? Is this when when Christ is born? Is this at the incarnation? Is this at the baptism? A lot of them agree that this is actually the triumphal entry when he's presented to Israel in this kingly manner. He rides in on a humble donkey, but he rides in nonetheless like a king, and they are praising him. They're throwing branches down. They're praising God. And during the course of this week, whether they are rejoicing in who he is or persecuting him, he is called the king of the Jews. And that's the first time we have record of that in the ministry of Christ. Mm-hmm. So this seems to be the end. And if you add up the years from 444 BC, that takes you right up to the historical date of that triumphal entry. Isn't that amazing? It's absolutely amazing. And you have unbelieving Israel and the Roman soldiers Mm -hmm. who are mocking him. They place a crown of thorns on his head and they place a sign above his cross that this is the king of the Jews. It's really astonishing when you realize how accurate this prophecy is, how the years actually add up and bring you to a certain point in time where Jesus is first and officially and publicly presented to Israel as Israel's own king, even though they rejected him. Now, it was during this week, after his triumphal entry, during the Passion Week, he went into the synagogue and he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And he read verse 1 and only half of a sentence in verse 2. He said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to build up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he stopped and he tells them that this has been fulfilled in their hearing. This day. This day. Yeah. This has been fulfilled in their hearing. He didn't continue. And if you continue, it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. And it goes on to describe the rebuilding of the ancient ruins. That hasn't been fulfilled yet. So Jesus acknowledges a gap in time. I think that's extremely significant. The idea that a prophecy can be compressed, so it sounds like one event or one series of events, but that there can be gaps of time built into the prophecy, that becomes really critical when we read the rest of this But we also see that when Jesus reads the prophecy about him from Isaiah 61, he builds that gap in. He lets everybody know he did not read beyond to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He left out the day of vengeance of our God. And we know from other places in scripture that happens at the time of the very end. Yeah, that's that rock that comes down. Yes. And then it grows. And God's people are given dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth. He reigns. This is the millennial Mm -hmm. kingdom. And we even learn from Revelation 20 that at the end of the millennial kingdom, there is the final judgment of God's vengeance when the wicked are thrown into the lake of fire. So we clearly see that God's judgment has not been poured out on the earth yet. It's interesting to me because I've I've often thought in the past, I, I've wondered why Jesus said, I didn't come to judge the world. I came that the world may be saved. That's in John 3, 17. And yet we know he took our sin to the cross. And I realize when Jesus came as an offering for sin, he didn't come judging the world. He came taking our judgment. Mm-hmm. He came to be the sacrifice that would receive God's judgment for all who would believe. The judgment of the unbelievers, the judgment of the world, 
is being extended to the time of the end in God's mercy, as Peter says. He's not slow to fulfill his promises. He's patient so that people will not be lost, so that people will believe. But Jesus' first coming was about being the sacrifice so that we are not judged. And I just think that's so interesting and that even here in this prophecy, we see a hint of that. And that takes us to the next verse. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood even to the end. There will be war. Desolations are determined. Wow. What Gabriel is saying is that the Messiah will be cut off after the end of the 62 weeks. Now, that's really important, that little preposition, after. We've already established that this prophecy, the first group of seven and the next group of 62 sevens, culminates with the triumphal entry of Christ where he is presented as the prince of his people. It's not long after, but it is after that that he is crucified. It's about a week later. Well, Mm -hmm. less than a week. But then Gabriel also says not only that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. In other words, he will have appear to have no benefit for himself visibly on earth. Although we know from the New Testament that he is at the right hand of God and all authority is in his hands, has been given to him. But he, in an earthly way, appears not to have an advantage. And if you're a Jew and you're reading this and you're confronted with this man, Jesus, who's died, and where's my kingdom? He can't be the real Messiah. If they come and read this, they're going to see, wait a minute, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That's what it would mean to a Jew. And then Gabriel says, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, What city is that? That's Israel. Yeah, that's Jerusalem in Israel. And the sanctuary is the temple. And we know that that happened in AD 70. What happened in AD 70? The Romans came in and just destroyed everything. Now, when you think about it, Gabriel is talking to Daniel right at the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire. And based on the visions that Daniel has already had, about these terrifying Gentile nations. And when Gabriel says the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the holy city, essentially, we think about the image, for example. He's looking forward to another empire. It's Mm -hmm. not going to be the Medo-Persian empire. It's going to be in the future. In fact, it has to be in the future because when he's talking to Daniel, Jerusalem is destroyed then. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been rebuilt yet. So we're talking about a prince who is yet to come in Daniel's future. And we know from history that what was the empire there at the time Jesus died and Jerusalem was destroyed a few years later? That was the Roman Empire. That was the Roman Empire. That last empire in the statue, that last empire in those beasts, and the one that would last until the time of the end. With some alterations, the toes would have clay mixed, but that iron, that beast goes to the end until the kingdom of God destroys it. Gabriel is accurately saying this will happen, but then he goes on and basically says more things will come after that. And what does he say that lets us know that? He says that its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations, plural, are determined. We know there's more ahead, more destruction ahead. Yeah. And poor Daniel, what he didn't see, after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the Jews were sent off in a 2,000-year-plus diaspora. They were exiled from Jerusalem. They fled. They were dispersed among the nations. There was no nation of Israel, but there were Jews living in every country of the world, just about, until a nation was formed in 1948. Now, it's not a believing nation, as we've said before. It's not the fulfillment of all of these prophecies, but the fact is, desolations are determined, and there will be war even until the end. And we're still, apparently, watching that play out. I used to wonder, why doesn't the Bible ever say anything about Hitler and what he did to Israel, to the Jews? Why didn't God foretell that? But you know, he did. It's here. It's here. It's right here. I like what Dr. Eslis Johnson wrote about this. He said, it's a difficult text to translate and convince everyone of your translation. There are three or four different translations. Essentially, they all mean the same thing. 
that there's going to be continuous desolation from that time on. And we have seen that. Absolutely. And they're still warring and defending themselves. And there's still anti-Semitism. And the Jews are still unbelieving as a nation. Though more and more individuals are coming to Christ and joining the church. So we come to the last verse in this prophecy, and Gabriel says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. We've got to unpack this a little bit, and we start out with that first phrase, and he will make a firm covenant with the many. People have had different ideas about this, but if we follow the rules of grammar, who is this he referring to? The prince that is to come that's going to destroy Israel. Right. The way we know that is that the rule of grammar is that a pronoun refers to the last noun named. So the last person named is the prince who is to come, not Christ, not the Messiah, but the prince who is to come. So we know that he's talking about someone who's associated with Rome. Yeah, and Revelation helps us understand this. This is the Antichrist. Exactly. And while the word Antichrist isn't used of any one man in Scripture, he is described in many places. And we recognize his activities, and Daniel has seen them already in that little horn on the fourth beast. Mm -hmm. According to scholars who use the same hermeneutic we use here, this is the 70th week. This is the tribulation. And there's a gap between the last verse and this verse, and that would be the church age. Verse 27 is describing what's going to happen in and to Israel at the end. I think that's really important to remember because if we try to say this is applying to all of God's people, we have to change the way we interpret the language. Gabriel has told Daniel that he's talking to him about 70 weeks that are decreed for his people. So we are seeing here a prophecy for the Jewish nation. And between the 69th week, which ended, and we see that in verse 26, the Messiah is cut off, and then things happen. And then in verse 27, we hear again of the things that will happen to the Jewish people. And there's an undetermined amount of time between that. We know from, the, like we said earlier, the pronoun after explains that at the end of the 62 weeks, then the Messiah will be cut off, then Jerusalem will be destroyed, then desolations will continue until the end. And we're not told how long all of that will continue, but we are told in 27 that something is going to happen that marks the end of that period of time that's undetermined and that will mark the beginning of the 70th week of activities that involve Israel. And what does he say will happen then? That he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Now, one of the problems that people who say this, there's no gap, one of the problems they're confronted with here is if they say that the 490 years are consecutive, they have to make this he, Jesus. Yeah. And they'll say, Jesus put a stop to sacrifice. Read Hebrews. Yeah. There's, there's no more need for sacrifice. But we have to stick with the words here. It says that he will put a stop to sacrifice. Jesus didn't put a stop to sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. That's right. The sacrifice actually continued for 30 years after he was the Messiah was cut off. And that's what we saw in 26 where the temple would be destroyed. That's when the sacrifices actually stopped in Israel, and it was the Roman prince who did that. And not only that, the six goals of Daniel 24 haven't been fulfilled. Transgression is not finished, there's no end of sin, nor has everlasting righteousness been brought into existence. So that's another issue that they have to deal with if they believe that there is a consecutive 490 years. And one that I think is the most compelling is if you believe it's consecutive, then you're able to determine when Jesus is coming back. <laughs> and Christ himself said that we can't do that. And didn't our former religion start that way? 
Using this section of scripture. Yes, using this section of scripture and a defiance of Jesus's declaration. They believed a date. Mm -hmm. Look where it got us. Confusion. And you know, another thing that's compelling to me for the gap theory is what Jesus read in his Passion Week, which we've already read. And then right before his ascension, his apostles came to him and said, Lord, is it time for you to bring in the kingdom? And he said, it's not for you to know the time. It's not for you to know the day or the hour. He didn't say, I already did, guys. Weren't you paying attention? Right. (laughs) He said, it's not for them to know. He had a whole different plan for them. They had to go into the world and preach the gospel and baptize and make disciples. He was commissioning them to do something that was brand new. And they didn't even know yet when he said, it's not for you to know. That was in Acts 1. Acts 2 hadn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit hadn't arrived and filled all believers with himself permanently. That was something that no one on earth had ever experienced before because the sacrifice and the resurrection had not yet happened. That's a new covenant blessing. And that had to be carried out and the church had to be planted and had to fill the earth. And here we are, Nikki, as part of the church. What an amazing thing to be grafted into God's olive tree as a Gentile. But we're not Israel. We're not Israel, and that millennial kingdom that we read about in Revelation 20 has not yet come, and it's not for us to know the day or the hour. No. (laughs) And here's Gabriel telling Daniel, things will happen, things will come. What is he saying that this one who makes the covenant with the many will do, and what will happen, and who are the many? Well, the many in the context is Israel. Correct. So he'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So he's going to break that covenant with them in the middle of that first week. So that's where we will often hear people talk about the three and a half years. I'm always like, where is that coming from? Well, halfway through seven, that's (laughs) three and a half, he's going to put an end to the sacrifice and the grain offering. And we can flesh this out. So if Daniel 27 is the outline for the future of Israel, then Revelation fills in all those details for us. And so we know that he's going to require, like Antiochus, very similar, he's going to require apostasy and the worship of himself. Of himself. And you know, It's interesting, too, because when he comes in and makes a firm covenant with the many, people may say, well, put a stop to what sacrifices? Well, if an Antichrist is going to come and make a covenant with Israel, what is the most disputed thing in their nation? It's the Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. They have to share the Temple Mount with other people, with Gentiles and Gentile religion. They believe that the Temple Mount is where they are commanded to worship. And it is indeed where God commanded them as in the Old Testament to worship. So, for an Antichrist to make a covenant with the Jews, it suggests that he will give them permission to worship as they please, for them to restore the Temple Mount, to even perhaps rebuild the temple. Now, this is not going to be like a godly temple. It will be a temple in the Old Covenant style because Israel is still unbelieving, and an Antichrist would never initiate a godly form of worship according to the rules that God has set forth for those in the New Covenant. But he will do something to make the Jews feel like they have their land back, their freedom back, their religion back, their access back, and three and a half years later. And they're already planning for that now. Oh, absolutely. They already have their flock of red heifers ready for the sacrifices. They already have the furnishings for the temple built and stored, ready to be erected. I mean, they believe that the day is coming when they can rebuild their temple. And according to Gabriel, it's going to happen. So when he breaks that covenant at three and a half years and institutes the defilement that echoes and surpasses that of Antiochus Epiphanes, Israel will be under siege, and desolations will break out again. But then Gabriel says, But in the middle of the week, at the end of three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrificing grain offering, which the Jews are continuing to do in their temple that they've built. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate 
even a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And here we see Gabriel actually including what Daniel has already seen in his chapter 7 vision. This Antichrist is going to wreak havoc, is going to destroy the temple worship, is going to erect some sort of self-worshipping altar to himself in the Jews' temple, and this will go on until Daniel 7 told us what would happen. One will wreak havoc on the one that makes desolate. The Almighty will sit, the judgment will begin, and God himself is going to throw that Antichrist into the flames. And that's how this will end. This has nothing to do with Sunday laws, vegetarianism, confessing every single sin. This has nothing to do with Ellen White. No. Or any of her failed prophecies, bad writing. Right. All of the things that terrified us that we believed were rooted in the book of Daniel are not here. They are not here. As we look back at this prophecy, let's see if we can summarize what we've learned. Because Gabriel is talking to Daniel about Israel, and because the context is Israel, and the earthly fulfillment of God's plans for the nation as set apart from his revealed plans for the Gentile nations, which Daniel had already seen, it seems contextually most accurate for us today to see this last week, the 70th week, described in verse 27 as being cut off from the first 69 weeks. The space of time between that 69th week and the 70th week is not identified. We know that Jesus' death, the destruction of Jerusalem, occurred after the 69th week, and we know that the 70th week will begin with the Antichrist making a covenant with the people of Israel. Now, just as Jesus' synagogue teaching about the proclamation of liberty to the captives began just before the end of the 69th week when he made his triumphal entry, and the day of God's vengeance has not yet occurred, so we can see that the time gap between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week is still going on. God's day of vengeance hasn't happened yet. This time gap is the gap in which God has revealed his mystery that Paul describes, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now, to be sure, the church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, but Paul explains this a little more fully in Romans 11. Nikki, could you read that passage for us? Paul says, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So we can know today in 2022 as Gentile members of the body of Christ that when the full number of Gentiles comes in, God will again turn to fulfilling his covenant promises with Israel. And that's when we see the 70th week beginning. God has shown Daniel his plan for his people. So, As we finish this prophecy, which has caused so much distress for so many Adventists, so much confusion, and actually a lot of confusion even among Christians, I just want to challenge everyone who might be listening to us. If you doubt some of this, if you're not sure how we got here, do the study yourself. Try reading these things using just the normal rules of grammar and context and interpretation and vocabulary. And see what the Bible actually says. Look up the marginal references and see the other places where God has promised what He will do for Israel. But in the meantime, as we born-again believers in the Lord Jesus are here in this world living the life He has given us to live at the time He has appointed us to live, we can know that He's faithful. He completes everything He promises. His Word cannot fail. And no matter what happens, we know that the Word of God will come to pass, and we can plant our lives on it. Nothing can shake us if we're founded in truth and reality. 
And the only way we can know that we're grounded in truth and reality is to obey the things that God has revealed to us about how we come into relationship with Him. And on this side of the cross, it couldn't be more clear. We have one command, to believe in the one whom the Father has sent. When we believe in Him, we pass from death to life and we do not come into judgment. And if you're hearing this, whether you're Jew or Gentile, and you have not trusted the Son, we challenge you to open up this book of Daniel and read this prophecy and read the rest of it, and then go to the book of John and read who Jesus said He was. Bring your sin to Him and trust His finished work of death on the cross for your sins, burial, and resurrection on the third day, all according to Scripture, and He will receive you. He will not turn you away. He will give you spiritual life and seal you with His Holy Spirit, and nothing will ever be able to take you out of His hands. Join us next week as we reflect on how this study through Daniel has impacted our approaching Christmas. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com. Music